0: Hey Munaza, how many languages do you speak? I speak two well, Urdu and English, but I can also do a quick conversation in French and Spanish. How about you? Well, I speak two, English and Spanish, but what if I told you I know someone who speaks nine languages? I would say you need to tell me more immediately. I've seen those polyglot videos on YouTube where people speak over 10 languages. Well, that's what we're here for. I'm Gabby Salazar. And I'm Anaza Alam. And we're National Geographic Explorers. And we get the question all the time, how do you become an explorer? And what does an explorer do? Well, we're going to tell you. Okay, cut to the chase. Nine languages? Well, as it turns out, how many languages do you speak is kind of a complicated question for a linguistic anthropologist like Sanja Narayanan, who we are talking about in this episode, by the way. I'm intrigued. Finally, we had to define it for her. We asked specifically how many languages could you use to have a quick conversation in a taxi with someone?
1: I could do like English, I can do Spanish, I can do French, I could do some Russian. I could definitely do Tamil, some Malayalam, some Hindi. My field languages,
0: Quechua and Aymara, I can do it. That's a lot of languages, for sure. But that's what she's researching, so it makes sense. Let's back up though. Sandhya is a linguistic anthropologist. Okay. I know that anthropology is the study of human society, cultures, and their development. But what is linguistic anthropology? Well, Sanja studies human languages, specifically multilingualism.
1: So I'm really interested in, um, in multilingualism. So that's sort of how communities over time Um, both small and really large, can sustain multiple languages, multiple linguistic varieties um, over long periods of time or even short periods of time. But basically, how does that work? So how do you get in sort of a community in any sort of location where humans are interacting with each other? How do you get different languages, different varieties, different dialects or just different ways of speaking to all sort of coexist at the same time and what sort of happens in that process. So how do people use the language? How do people talk in general? Um, What does it mean to speak one way over another and how how do each of those situations, what does that sort of tell us about who we are as human beings in general? So what are the differences across the world, but also what are some of the basic things that sort of connect us to each other as human
0: beings? That sounds so complicated, but also interesting. Does she study anywhere in particular? Absolutely. She studies in South America,
1: for the past, I would say, five years, I've been looking at this in, uh, with indigenous language multilingualism on the Peru-Bolivian border. Uh, so I work with Quechua and Aymara-speaking communities. Um, a lot of them speak Spanish, but I also look at how these indigenous languages are being spoken in relation to each other, in relation to Spanish, and what it means today to be an indigenous language speaker in that particular area.
0: So is working with groups of people who all live in the same area, but all speak different languages? Kind of. In this area, nearly everyone speaks Spanish. Then different cultural groups have different languages. They speak together in addition to Spanish. That would be indigenous languages like Quechua and Aymara. Okay, I get it. That's a lot of languages for one place. I know, but do you know how many languages are spoken across the whole world? Hmm. I'm not sure. A thousand? That's a good guess, but it's actually over 7,000. Think of all the different ways you could say I love you or I'm hungry, which I kind of am right now. Well, sounds like we might need more linguistic anthropologists. I know. So how did Sandhya get interested in studying languages? Well, Sandhya is South Asian Canadian, so she grew up around a lot of languages.
1: I mean, at home, we spoke Tamil, Malayalam, Hindi, Bengali, English. Yeah, there were all of those spoken at home or in contact at home, some Telugu, some Kannada. Um, and that was either between my own parents. I lived with my grandmother, family members like my grandmother. I had uncles and aunts uh, that we were really close with, but also just part of the larger community as well.
0: That kind of laid the groundwork for her interest. But she didn't realize at first that this was something you could actually apply science to.
1: I think it was at some point in college when I started taking enough classes in linguistics and in anthropology that I realized, oh, wow, people actually go out and study this. (laughs) Um, And I found it kind of one of those you know, great pieces of irony. I was like, oh, oh, people go out and study this, but I've been living most of it my entire life. And I think that's sort of what it was. It was this realization that a lot of research, a lot of work, a lot of the thoughts and findings that pe- of people that other researchers have done in this field you know, that they had to like go out somewhere to go and figure it out. Whereas for me, when I was taking these classes, I realized, wait, I could, I could have told you a lot of this just based on my own experiences in life. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was actually kind of cool. I think it was the first time that I actually felt empowered about my own sort of upbringing and experiences, because for a long time I was, I did feel bad. I did feel like a lot of sort of racism, a lot of resentment, a lot of exclusion growing up. You were one of a few and that few could be like there are many of those few groups out there or you're like the only few, like the only people of color in your class or something like that. That is
0: really tough. I'm also a South Asian American, and I've been in a lot of spaces where I haven't seen anyone that looks like me.
1: And, and you didn't quite fit in in either way. Like, we would we would go to India and interact with our cousins there. So you, you felt like you didn't belong in any particular area or any particular context in life growing up. And then here is the sort of discipline that just said, actually, there's nothing wrong with you, and this is cool, and this is actually natural in human history. Mm-hmm. Um and the f- fact that there are communities that or that individuals growing up in these communities do feel like they don't belong they feel insecure or they feel disempowered because of these um, these experiences is actually like part of larger systemic problems in our world today with like racism inequality xenophobia, the works. And I think that was the moment. I think it was like a combination of taking enough classes, but also having those be that empowering moment of like, wow, like, actually there is something special about how I've grown up, of how I've come to understand the world that is unique.
0: That couldn't have been easy to deal with, but I like how she used the hardships she's run into to fuel her work. Definitely. And it's part of what makes her work so special to her.
1: So if you speak a non-standard dialect, or if you speak a language that is often considered backwards or inferior, then you as a person get totalized by that, um, get totalized by that reading Uh, as, well, you are backwards inferior, or you are less than, or you are not good enough in those ways. And because I work in that realm. Um, I think for me, what is really fulfilling is actually a lot of people who I do work with, who are Indigenous language speakers, who are trying to figure out whether or not they should speak or continue speaking these languages with their kids, with the future generation. Um, you know, I tell them my story. It's like, you know, I do really get it. Like I, and I share them. You know, my experiences and how I grow up, and there's, and that's that moment of bonding where then a lot of my work becomes easier because I've connected with the people who I'm working with on another level. It's not just, I've come here to study you. (laughs) FYI, I'm here to study you. I'm the, you know, I come from the US, I'm the linguist and anthropologist, but it's like, actually, yeah, I totally get that. That is hard. I, I know what that is.
0: I understand this too. My first language is Urdu because that's the language that my parents spoke at home. But I know that if I don't continue speaking this language, my kids won't be able to either. That's really interesting. You know, as a conservationist, I often think about animals or plants going extinct, but I don't think about languages going extinct. Yes, especially because language can be lost in as little as one generation. Wow. So what is the one thing Sandia can't be in the field without? Ah, yes. The eternal question.
1: I always have to have my recorder. I need it there. I must always have it. If I didn't it, I would feel like, oh my God, what did I do? I'm in the field without it. So definitely that and a notebook and pen. I always need those two.
0: That makes sense if Sundia studies languages. She has to record to make sure she hears everything right. So what does Sundia's research actually look like? Well, I'll let her tell you about it.
1: I do two things. I work individually with people, like individual people, and then I look at language and at how it's used in open spaces. So individually with people is... A combination of, um, I do interviews in the language of their choice, and I ask them things like, tell me about your life, tell me about your language, tell me about stories, funny stories. So I collect all that information, and I and I collect it in whatever language they're most comfortable in. And then I do specific elicitation, so I like, can you say these 12 sentences for me as well? So, you know, I cover my basics on the linguistic end, just to see the bare-bone basic to understand Um, the bare-bone linguistic structures of what is going on grammatically in these spoken forms.
0: Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Sounds like Sandhya's work just involves talking with people. How cool. I agree. Maybe I should be a linguistic anthropologist. Did you know my name, Gabby, means talks a lot? (laughs) I definitely believe that. But Sandhya is also an anthropologist, right? What does that part involve?
1: Then the anthropological part is the other half, where I see how these languages are used in everyday life. And I pick settings. I pick either, I pick events. Um, I pick moments where I can just leave my recorder and record people as they talk without the focus on, mm-hmm. okay, you're being interviewed now. Be on, give me the best the best version of talk that you can. it's like, no, people are just talking. People are negotiating. So I've, um, I've worked in markets just to record how people are talking in markets. Um, I look at things like schools or radio stations, uh, where language is being produced, um, I look at public events like uh, religious ceremonies, rituals, public performances, and I, and I record how people are talking, maybe even during the rehearsal what they're singing, how they're talking about it. And I combine all of those things together to try and understand what does it mean to be a speaker of X number of languages in this area? What does it mean? Uh, to be multilingual in this area? What does it mean to be indigenous in this area?
0: That sounds so interesting. Are there any challenges? Well, there are a few.
1: So one thing with the interviews is often I don't do it in their homes. I usually have to follow them somewhere. So again, it's sometimes wherever they're working. Like in the marketplaces, great. During downtime in the fields while we're planting potatoes or quinoa, great. Herding sheep, That's harder. No, no, (laughs) because sheep vocal cords, actually, the vocal tract is very similar to humans. So when processing it, when I have to go back and analyze it, I have to be really careful that the sheep like bleeding because it can be easily confused for a human.
0: I always felt like I could relate to sheep. Oh, Gabby. Does somebody have any advice for kids who are interested in doing this type of work? She sure does.
1: Always take care of yourself. Always be aware of how to take care of yourself. Um... I do a lot of my work on my own. And even though I'm like starting to think about future projects where I go with other people, I know I still will be mostly on my own because I'll be the only linguist and or anthropologist in the group. So it's like, yeah, you go off on your own. So always like be aware and having a good sense of your own self-awareness is super duper important. And um, I would say don't be afraid to make mistakes, like take risks, take measured risks But but be open to, yeah, you're gonna make mistakes, you're gonna fail, but it's okay. And always have a good sense of humor, Mm. because it'll get you through even like really, really like borderline not so great times. Like, I know I've gone through a lot just by being able to turn it into a funny joke or a funny story or just to spin it in a different way to make it laugh. So, have a good sense of humor.
0: Thanks for listening, future explorers. If you want to know more about Sandhya Narayanan and her work, check out the book No Boundaries about women scientists and explorers. It was written by me, Gabby Salazar, and my fellow explorer, Claire Fiesler. And it's available wherever books are sold.
1: That's it for today's episode. Next week, we'll be talking to a marine biologist and journalist who co-wrote a book you might have heard of. How We Explore is hosted by Gabby Salazar and Manaza Alam. This podcast was written by Alison Shaw and Emily Everhart. Rebecca Cunningham is our audio producer and Claire Fiesler is our editorial consultant and field recording specialist. Music composed by Ijo Leo with guitar by Axel Borgmo. Curtis Cross is our audio engineer. Gabby Salazar is our producer and Emily Everhart is our executive producer. Special thanks to all interviewees for agreeing to participate in this project.